0: How do we know that? He himself said in John, destroy this temple, and I will remember it in three days. And John added that he did not understand what he was talking about. Because he was talking about his own body. Right? So he applied a different sense to Scripture. One that does not contradict the first one. It complemented. <laughs> the third sense of temple, the pertains to the church in the end of time is that the church today is the temple of God. And the fourth sense is that we, as we the living Saint the are called what? By St. Paul. Temples of the Holy Spirit. Four senses that harmonizes around that word. Now, what happened to the temple of Jerusalem in 70, AD? It was destroyed. What happened to the body of Christ? It was destroyed. What is going to to happen to the church on earth and to the whole universe at the end of time? It will be destroyed. What happens to our bodies when we die? All right. What happened to the body of Christ three days later after he died? What happened to the temple after it was destroyed? It became the church. What will happen to the church at the end of time? And to the universe? New creation. A new heaven and a new earth. Church glorious. And what happens to us when we rise in Christ? Glorified bodies. You see how the four senses of scripture harmonizes? Harmonize and they always do that so you have to be attentive to them, and you have to be careful. And as you read scripture, determine what sense are you actually following them? In most what I'm going to do, and in this whole Bible study, I'm focusing on the literal sense. Why? Because it is the one that we lack most today. We do not have, we've lost the interpretive key that allows us to understand what Luke, Mark, Matthew, John meant when they wrote, what they wrote. We have a very superficial understanding, mostly moral, that is, an understanding based on the moral sense, as Scripture applies to me today. That's the one we're really strong on. But as far as the three other ones, we're fairly weak. We need the first one, as the church reminds us. Okay. Having said that, let's put some context around the writings of St. Luke. Without that context, much of what happens between the angel and Mary remains a mystery to us. A couple of things that I need to remind you of. First of all, we need to understand the notion of a covenant. we pretty much lost that notion. A covenant is an exchange of persons between two families, so that the two families become one. Remember when I told you it's about family? It's about family. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Why? Because seven, because to make a covenant is to seven oneself. So on the seventh day, God was entering a covenant with His creature. Effectively raising his creature from the from the status of creature to such Adam Eve had entered into the family of God through that covenant. You understand? When a man and a woman are you know get married, it is it isn't a contract. Right? It isn't something that I can break, especially when they get married in front by invoking God's name. What they're saying is that they're saying to each other, we are entering in a covenant with, between the two of us, and God. It's a three-way party. And we are invoking God's name so that in health and in sickness, in good times and in bad times, we'll remain faithful. Why do we invoke God's name? Because Realistically, neither you nor me can trust each other sufficiently to know that we can get through it. But by invoking God's name, we have now said to God, if, number one, we need you to help us be faithful to that covenant, number two, if we are faithful to the covenant, you will bless us, and number three, if we're not, you will curse us. That is the principle of every covenant. And the curse of God is always medicinal. Its purpose is to bring us back. Sort of what you do when you spank a kid when it's not well behaved. And your purpose is not to destroy the child, but to remind the child that there are consequences to certain behaviour so that the child would stop you know stealing all the children from the fridge. So the covenant is very important, and there has been numerous covenants in the Old Testament. Testament really is the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. That covenantal nature is always linked to marriage. Very much so. And God speaks of Israel in many, many Old Testament texts as His pride. Ezekiel is a good place to see this language Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos besides the the Lord speaks of Israel as His bride He uses nuptial terms to express the intimacy of relationship between Him and His people St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila use the same language when they speak of the union of the, the union of a soul with her Creator, which is the highest degree of the mystical life. That language pertains to our relationship with God. What is adoration? It is the giving of one's soul to the One whom we're adoring. That is adoration. Very different from veneration, very different from um, um, love. Adoration is the highest gift of oneself. You give your soul. That is the reality that is signified by marriage. Marriage will cease once one of the two die. But that unity of soul to to, the, to God will never cease. It will remain eternal. Okay. And in some cases, there are some who forego marriage to celibate life and the life of a, a priestly call. And really what they're doing is that they're, they're foregoing the temporary and going straight to the permanent. That is why the church is right in stating that the the consecrated life, in a sense, is is of higher value than married life, because of that reality, that they're really foregoing something, they're sacrificing something that is very, very good, which is marriage, but it is temporary, in order to go to the eternal good. And if you have children, you need to encourage them to consider that. It is your duty to help your children see whether God calls them to consecrated life. Because if He does, it is indeed a great blessing and privilege. So, covenant is very important. We're going to see it in that text. The second thing I need to say before we go back to Luke is a good understanding of the historical events that took place prior to Gabriel announcing what he has announced here. Three terms that we need to understand very well: Hebrews, Israelite, and Jews. Today they're used almost exclusively in an interchangeable way. We speak of Israelite Hebrews and Jews as if they are the same people. The reality is that they are not. In the Bible, Hebrews are descendants of Eber, great 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 grandfather of Abraham. Under the biblical genealogy, the descendants of Ishmael, the Muslims, are Hebrews. Because they go back to Eber. They fall under that genealogical tree. Remember, it's family. Israelites are descendant of Jacob, Israel. The 12 tribes. And Jews are descendant of Judah, the third son of Jacob. Let me repeat that. Hebrews descend from Eber, the forefather to Abraham. Israelites descend from Israel Jacob the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham and Jews descend from Judah, the third son of Israel Why is that important? For the following reason A covenant was made with Abraham in which God told him I will bless all all nations shall bless themselves see, singular, not plural, singular. That covenant was ratified and repeated with David. When Nathan told David that his kingdom shall last forever. Psalm 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand side until I make a footstool of all your enemies. Okay. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai, Yahweh is God, Adonai is my Lord. Who is David talking about? Who is this Adonai making reference to? In a literal sense, don't jump immediately to the, you know, anagogical sense, the sense that pertains to Christ. Literally, you know who was talking who he was talking to when he wrote that song? Solomon. In all times, a king would consecrate his son, king, while he was alive. Number one, he wanted to see the kid at his graduation. Number two, he wanted to make sure that his dynasty would be established. And number three, he a kid out of it. seeing his, his kid becoming king. This is where he satisfied very shortly. So David is telling Solomon, listen, kid, God told me this. You, because he established established my dynasty. The dynasty is not established until the son of the king becomes king. Then it is established. So when Solomon in his ways to and became a king, David is seeing the fulfillment of that prophecy, the beginning of it, that indeed. The kingdom shall not depart from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. That was the prophecy made by Israel, Jacob, about Judah. David is in the lineage of Judah. That prophecy is made that the kingdom of David, meaning the kingdom of Israel, will last forever. Now, At this juncture, you need to uh, apply a mental pressure, to to separate what I'm telling you with current political realities. What I'm speaking about has almost nothing to do with the current state of Israel. You get that? This is not about politics. Me stating that the Bible said, the "Kingdom of David shall last forever," should not be misconstrued as a statement about the political permanence of the modern state of Israel has nothing to do with it. I'll show you why. All right? But now here's the problem. After Solomon's death, the kingdom is split in half. You get the kingdom of Judah down south, and the remaining ten tribes that is the tribes other than Judah and Benjamin form up north the kingdom of Israel so now the kingdom of Israel starting with about the year 920 BC the kingdom of Israel has a completely different meaning than the one intended by the prophet Nathan it now means, it refers to the ten tribes up north separated from Jerusalem what is the problem? Not only do they separate themselves politically, they erect their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is where Moses placed the tribes and told them about what was going to happen to them once they entered the the promised land. It is the mount where Jacob lived. That's why they took on the name Kingdom of Israel, because Jacob, Israel, when he came back from living up with his uncle, met his brother Esau, and being afraid of his brother Esau, went up north. And he lived most of his life north, in a promised land. And that's why they called it the Kingdom of Israel. In in about 722 B.C. the Assyrians swooped down, and the both of the tribes after stern warnings from the prophets. Return to Jerusalem or else. They don't return to Jerusalem, they continue to worship on Mount Gerizim and they mix the initial sacrifice with sacrifice of gods God. Prophets, a string of prophets are sent, a salvo is sent saying, Repent or else. And then another sh- uh, series is sent saying, Get ready. Assyrians show up they scoop all ten tribes deport them and force them to marry with other conquered people. In, a, in, in, in around 590 the Babylonians would stoop down on the kingdom of Judah down south destroy the temple of Solomon deport all the, the Jews but the Jews were allowed to return. The Israelites the remaining 10 tribes were not allowed to return in fact you could not trace the lineage you could not trace anybody to an Israelite lineage why is that a problem? because of the covenant made with David where God said your kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and because of the promises and the prophecies made by the prophet saying that the Messiah will come and will restore the kingdom of Israel now you tell me how can you restore a kingdom where you can't tell who belongs to that kingdom do you understand the problem? the rabbis and the priests in Jerusalem they could not make sense of this how could God restore the kingdom of Israel if we can't tell who is an Israelite fast forward time of Jesus we have Judah living down south around Jerusalem. We have Samaria, the Samaritans, so called by the Jews. The Samaritans never call themselves Samaritans, they call themselves Israelites in the middle. And we have Galileans living up north. That's the political, historical reality that you have to contend with and map it back to the promises made by God that He will restore the kingdom of David the house of Jacob you can use those terms interchangeably if you now go back and read the Gospel of Luke you will see those terms used over and over and over again without that context and bringing your attention you will just read them and glance over them and they will mean nothing and you will miss the import and the drama and the tragedy surrounding them. What do you mean you are going to restore the Kingdom of Israel? You can't tell who is Israelite anymore. What was their view? What is this thing that they missed? A capital factor. And that is, the Kingdom of Israel was to serve a purpose. It was not an end in itself, And its purpose was to bring back the nations to God. That was its purpose. But then the of Jesus, the temple priesthood had forgotten all about that. They had formed a political temple, a political order, and they were living a cozy life around the temple. Judah was restored, so to speak, and what they were hoping for is that the Messiah would show up, <coughs> would take a sword, raise an army, kick the Romans out, and restore, and expand that political that they had. And that, the restoration they were thinking about. You understand? That's why the prophets were not very much right. Isaiah prophesied of a time when Gentiles would become priests and offer sacraments. That was sacrilegious to the hearing of the people of his time. Non-Levites, Israelites who are non-Levites, who are not of the tribe of Levi, could not become priests. You want Gentiles to become priests? In fact, Isaiah told that not only Gentiles to become priests, but the four Gentiles, called Eunuch, would one day become priests. Guess what Jesus got that picture from? See, the Old Testament is the interpretive key to understand what Jesus and the apostles and Paul and the priests are all talking about. Without that, we miss the point. And certainly we miss the point when Gabriel is talking to Mary. So let's go back to the text and try to understand what is going on here. Let's start with, begin with verse 26 in chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. you key on that word now? When he says of the house of, what is the house of David? That's the royal lineage of David. Any. Christian of Jewish background reading this will immediately flag that. When he says the house of David, he's bringing back all this context is just described to you. With the covenant, the prophecy to Abraham, the prophecy to David, the whole historical tragedy, with the split of the kingdom, the deportation, the lost ten tribes, all of that, is hiding behind this word, the house of David. And just to give you an example, if I were to say to you today, 9-11, You know how much of a context you can bring back, just with those two numbers. That's the same thing that happens here. And we need to train ourselves and study to the point where a word like this immediately evokes the whole context. Then scripture springs to life. The house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Last week, we spent almost the whole hour on this one verse. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And I mentioned to you that there are two ways to translate. I mean, there's three ways you can translate that. The first one, which is certainly proper from a Greek grammatical perspective, The Greek is which means rejoice, and in the literal sense, in the minimal sense, would be highly favored one. So if you were trying to do the literal translation, you could translate it, rejoice, highly favored one, and that certainly would be correct grammatically. The maximalist sense would be something akin to rejoice, oh, um, you right now, but it would need something like rejoice, oh, um, well, anyway, the translation full of grace, which comes to us from St. Jerome, captures the meaning, even though it may not be very, you know, precise, and I'm going to show you why today using the text. Last week, I spent all my time going back through text in the Old Testament, pointing to you how you can read that text. Um, and see that it applies to Mary. And I have a whole list for you of biblical references. If, if some of you are interested, after the talk come and see me, I'll give you this list again. But today I'm going to show you why this is a correct translation from looking at the text itself. first element that we see is that this is the only place okay. in which an angel speaks to a human being and give this human being a title. There are a number of places where God changed the name of an individual. Abram father of many Abraham, father of the multitude Jacob the one who has guile Yaakov If you understand Arabic, you would catch the word immediately. The one who is, who causes someone else to stumble into Israel, the chosen of God. And the third one, of course, is Simon into rock. If you have time, you can spend a whole hour looking at that word rock. What I will tell you about Rock and why it is important, is because there are many names and many, I mean, Yeshua, Savior, was given to quite a few children. Rock was never given to any Jewish boy or any Israelite. Abraham is called Rock once, and other than that, God is called Rock. Go read the Psalms my Lord, my God, my rock, my salvation. God is the rock of Israel. So when Jesus gave that title to Peter, rock, the apostles standing around him immediately understood what he was doing. It was huge. Uh, Pun unintended. I didn't mean that the rock was huge. Anyhow. Okay. Here we have an angel saluting a creature and not calling her by her name, but by a title. First of all, rejoice. That is stated in the imperative, almost like an order. Now let me ask you a question Can you order somebody to rejoice? (laughs) Go ahead, rejoice. Good luck. So what's Gabriel doing here, you know, ordering Mary after a joke? What is he doing? Is he lacking in psychology? There's another way in which we use imperatives, right? When we are expressing admiration, right? When we express admiration, we use imperatives. That is precisely I'm seeing. I'm going to show you that through the text. Gabriel sees Mary. He doesn't see her with human eyes. He sees her with spiritual eyes. The eyes of one who contemplates divinity. And what he sees in her is the masterpiece of creation. And he lacks words to express it. These words he used, even when we say, hail, full of grace, These words fail to capture who Mary is. It's just an approximation. In fact, Pope Leo XIII said that not even Mary can understand the dignity to which God elevated her. Only God does. I'm going to give you a little glimpse of that dignity. Notice how, when he says to her, Rejoice, hail full of grace, the Lord is with you. This is not a salutation. He's not saying to her, hail full of grace, peace, to with you. He is explaining why he is in admiration. Because the Lord is with her, not now, not for that one moment, but permanently, with her, why? Because God chose to be with her, before He was in her, you know, with flesh and blood, He was with And what Gabriel is saying, St. Andrew will is that he is with you more than he is with me. That's why I am in heart. I am an angel, and up to that point, up until the point that Jesus comes, becomes man, and redeems us, angel are our, angels are our superior. But after that redemption, after that redemptive act, we are on equal footing as an angel tells St. John in the Apocalypse, in the, in the When St. John falls flat on his face in front of an angel, the angel tells him, you must not do that. The first time in biblical history that an angel, as a human, don't fall on your face, face when you see an angel. Up to that point, in Old Testament, every time a, a human saw an angel, they f- fell flat on their face and no angel objected. But after we were saved, and we were made full of grace that helped no more of here, Gabriel is odd of what we see. That fullness of grace comes to her because since the moment of her conception, she never contracted original sin. Here I refer you to Genesis 3 uh, 15, in which God said he would put an enmity between the woman and the serpent and when God does something he does it perfectly and has that enmity meant that it was perfect, complete, total, without any concession by the way, this is the only enmity that God ever created or ever expressed between the woman and the serpent Genesis 3 15 that enmity is so perfect that Mary never having contact with original sin since the moment of her inception was had God always with her so that by the time he sees her she had grown so much in holiness in grace that she indeed was full of grace and what he means by full of grace he means that when I look at all your virtues all the virtues Mary, faith hope charity and all the moral virtues, you are perfect in all of them. And He is not, but what is He? Now, I can speak hours about this, and you can remain skeptical of what I am telling you. Mary is not one to be read about. Mary is one to be experience and you must earnestly seek and beg her son to give you the privilege to discover your mother if you haven't yet not outwardly only because the church tells us to do that which is great don't get me wrong you know not just because we have to say the rosary I love the rosary nothing against it but inwardly. Beg the Lord to make Mary more real to you than the bench on which you are sitting. And you will come to see for yourself that everything I am saying to you today truly falls short of the glory of God. Now, let's continue. She was greatly troubled at what? Because she saw the angel? No. At what he was saying. Don't you find that odd? Let me ask you a question. You're sitting in your own, mind your own business, working on your computer, talking to your friend or sister, and suddenly an archangel pops up in front of you. And he starts talking to you. Are you going to be troubled about what he's going to say? just asking this question. Just put yourself in that situation. You're sitting in your room doing whatever. Gabriel, the archangel, shows up. How do you think you're going to react? Well, we have a good example before us. A man who's righteous before God. Blameless. His name is Zechariah. That was a holy man. He was at the temple. And then Look at us, they were both, meaning Elizabeth and Zechariah, righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. How many of us can say that? How many of us can we have somebody, when we die, say this about us? And I'm talking about two people who don't have the sacraments. I mean, just see their stature. These are athletes in the faith. You're talking about, you know, superstar here. Gabriel appears to Zechariah. And what happens to him? And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, the same word, when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Mm-hmm. That's Exhibit A for all of us. That's what will happen. Mm-hmm. What happened to Mary? Notice the difference. She was greatly troubled. There was no fear at what? At his saying. Why? Because he addressed her in this way. So now, suppose an angel shows up and says to you, you are you are such a great saint in the eyes of God. If you're truly humble, if you're truly living a life in life faith, how do you think you know me now? Right? But there are two satanas, you know. This is uh, uh, the, the devil appearing in the, as, as an angel of. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to push it away, right? That's Mary's reaction in a sense. That's why she's troubled. She's troubled because that sanitation coming from an angel. Because remember, if, if if let's say I say to you or your kid is really smart, you might be happy and and, and you, you might like it, right? But let's say I'm saying and like this to you, this is the smartest kid I've ever taught. Now, I said what Einstein said. Does it carry the same weight? No. Doesn't, right? Why? Because of who's saying it. Who's calling Mary full of grace? An angel. So, of course, she's going to be troubled at what he's saying. Notice, and she doesn't even react that the angel is here, which leads me to believe that to a certain degree she must have been familiar with Angelic's apparition. Must have been the first one. Because she reacts as if, you know, she'd seen an angel before. If you pay attention to the text. Luke very suddenly tells us she only reacted about what he said, now, that he just appeared. Right? Which tells you her degree of holiness. For not to be afraid and fall on your face, because an angel appears to you is to be free from all sin. Right? Now. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Saint Augustine asked the following question If Mary is full of grace, it means that she's never never, ever, lost favor with God. Make sense? If she is this perfect creature that was never under the same sin, it means that she never lost God's favor. Why is it that Gabriel is telling her you he found favor with God? See the problem? Which is also why I do not subscribe to the uh, Rejoice highly favored one? Because there it makes even less sense. Rejoice, highly favored one, you have found favor with God. Well, how could I be highly favored if I just found favor with God? Okay? question is, if Mary is this perfect being who never ever lost the friendship of God, God has always been with her, how could she have lost the favor? Unless, of course, that favor that she has found, that she has received, is not for her, for us. you understand? The favor that she is about to receive is not about her personal sanctity. It is about her mission in the world. She is called to be the mother of God for the salvation of the world. You understand? That's why she had found freedom. Her personal holiness is what enables her to carry on the mission for the rest of us. That's why we say that Mary interceded for us from the beginning. That's why we say Mary in her person represents the church, the first of the league. That's why we say that the mission of Jesus Christ is infinitely linked to that of his mother. Not, not because Jesus absolutely needed Mary, God needs no one, but because he wanted it to be the same. This is how he wanted it to be, because he is a loving God. And a loving Son. That is the immensity of the mystery of the incarnation, that God can love as the Son, that God wanted all. You have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear the son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Uh, here goes Gabriel again. Understanding nothing about humanity. Can anybody tell me how the woman can conceive in her womb? How do you do that? Here we go. Well, much more you tried on your own. No luck. You will conceive in your womb. How could you do know? that? You see the language? It's very odd. Mary picks up on that and she says, How can this be since I have no husband? Now it gets even. Stranger. Wait a minute. Luke just told her that she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothal at the time of Jesus was essentially a legal marriage. So, during betrothal, the woman was found with child. It was quite okay. It was a period in which they were legally married, but the husband would, be, it was a period of one year during which the husband would be building the house before he really had her, you know, bring her under his roof. But there were married. There was no legal sanction if she was hungry. So, we have a young couple who is married, and an angel comes and tells the bride something rather very simple You're going to have a baby boy, and you're going to call him Jesus. And she answers and says, How could that be? Since I don't know, I I, haven't. You see how odd it sounds? How could that be since I know not men? Why would she say that if she was in a miracle relationship with Joseph? It makes no sense. Do you understand how odd it sounds? She's married. If you're married, you're going to have kids. In the time of Jesus, the kid is always a blessing. So, what's the big deal? And besides, why is Gabriel getting down having a love her she's going to have a baby boy and she's going to call him Jesus? And that's all there is to it. it was all about God's relationship between her and it makes no sense. The only way to understand this is to understand that Mary had consecrated herself to God completely. Then the answer makes sense. I mean, then the question makes sense. Because now she's faced with a dilemma. I've consecrated myself entirely to God, and I've decided not to know men. Explain to me how can this be reconciled with my mission, with my calling. And he does, which is another amazing thing. One of the few places in which an angel complies to a question by human. Notice who is in control here. Notice asking questions and people supplying the answers. In the case of Zechariah, Zechariah says, hey listen, I'm 90 years old, my wife is just the same, you tell me that I'm a boy. Right? And what happens? Does he answer him, says, Zechariah, don't worry, God can't do anything, you know, I am Gabriel who stands before God because you have not believed the word I told you. Okay? You won't be able to speak until this happens. Whoa. And here's Mary saying, Okay, explain that to me. How did this happen? And he got to explain it. You need to appreciate who is higher than who here. You need to realize the dignity of this woman, this very young girl, probably not older than 16. Who is interrogating an archangel who stands before the very face of God? And he's complying with their questions and answering them. I also want to point out to you that don't allow yourself, don't be allowed into thinking of Mary as this, you know, very gentle mom. You know, this century, if this century did anything, is poison our minds and turning moms into brainless women. Oh, you don't have a job. What? That means you can't think. Oh, you're just a mom. Don't allow that to happen to you. Don't think, never think of Mary as this, you know. There's a a problem with our piety sometimes, and we represent her. And that's it. We never. She had never contracted original sin. Do you know what that means for her intelligence, her will, her wisdom, the depth of understanding she has? Realize that. You are dealing with a very, very experienced and wise theologian. What is theology? It is the science of God. It is one thing, one thing to know something about God by studying scripture. It is an all together, it's a, it's a different thing to know something about God by experiencing God. You're dealing with a very brilliant and capable mind. And I would suggest to you as a woman that you ought to take Mary as your mother. The church calls you it is your duty to explain the faith and pass it on. You. Don't think that theology is the domain of men. Oh, yeah, writing expert stuff and, 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 and writing in a very complicated way, maybe the expert of geek theologians, but knowing about God has always been. And expertise of women developed more so than men. If nothing else, those of you who had the blessing of carrying a child in your womb have a very deep understanding of prayer. the prayer is, is exactly like pregnancy. You have a baby in your womb, the baby's growing, you're not doing anything make like the baby grow. You know, you've let them, you know, you can do push-ups as much as you want, the baby won't grow one each more and when the baby needs to grow. You're receptive to a presence in you that is not you, you're attentive to it, and you let something happen to you. Guess what? Those have become of prayer. Men. men have a much harder problem with it because men go to prayer the way they go to, you know, construction. Alright, where's the hammer, where's the tool, I'm supposed to do, give me the plan, let's go. And God is saying, no, 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 you just have to sit. Sit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just sit. What do you mean sit? um, I I do my performance evaluation here. Just sit and be still and know that I am God. Don't reduce Mary to some sort of little figurine. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy and the Son of God. There are three overshadowing in the Bible. The first one occurred in Genesis, when the Spirit overshadowed creation, right before creation started. The second overshadowing occurred in the end of Exodus, when the Holy Spirit descended on the tabernacle, and filled the temple with the glory of God, so much so that Moses could not stay there he had to get out. And the third overshadowing occurs here. All three of them are related to the covenant. All three of them the creation. The first one, the creation of the world. The second one, the passing of Israel from Egypt into the promised land. And the third one is here. Alright. Now, I glossed over one thing. I want to come back back to the point to you. And the Lord God... Alright, yeah. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his Father... David. You notice that? You thought that? Father David. Go back to Psalm 2. The Lord said to my Lord. Now you can look at it anagogically. Now you can look at that song in relationship to Jesus Christ. Solomon is a prefiguration, an image of Jesus Christ, who is the reality. And he is the son of David. Why? Because, the angel says it, He will reign over the house of Judah? Jacob. Jacob. Forever. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the son of David. What is He reigning over? The house of? Jacob. Okay. Forever. Where is the house of Jacob? Now, where is it? We're in it. This is the house of Jacob. This is Israel. The church. You understand? This is the reign of Jesus Christ. Forever. You understand? This is the fulfillment of the promise. We live it. That's what it means. Now, How can this be since I have no husband? I gave you the literal meaning first. How could this be since I have no husband? But what Mary. Now let's look at it eschatologically as it pertains to the temple and to the church. What is Mary the symbol of? Israel. And now Israel is asking, how could this be since I have no husband? Meaning what? Meaning that. Since the break of the kingdom, the covenant is broken, and I'm without husband. I'm not in a miracle relationship with God. How can this be since Israel doesn't exist today? How can we restore Israel? Where do we see that? Keep your finger here and flip over quickly to John chapter 3. verse 7 there came a woman of Samaria to draw water you know that passage very well. a Samaritan woman remember Samaritans are Israelites Okay? they live up north she's drawing water from what the well of Jacob Okay? and Jesus said to her give me a drink how is it that you a Jew ask a drink of me a woman of Samaria for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans Woman, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then keep on, keep, you know, if we drop down to uh, verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And he whom you now have is not your husband. The common understanding of it, he whom you now have is that she's living in an extra marital relationship with some guy. The deeper sense is that, that he belongs to Jesus. He whom you now have is not your husband. You understand? The Samaritan woman represents Israel. All of Israel. Israel is out of that marital bondage with marital bond with her husband, the Lord. And Jesus is saying that you have said rightly. He whom you now have is not your husband. And I have come to bring you back in it. It's an echo of the question that Mary put to the angel. How can this be since I have no husband? And psychologically, from the sense of Israel, Israel is saying, after death in the Lord. I have no husband. I'm not in a covenantal relationship with this? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and will overshadow you. Meaning what? Meaning I'm about to effect a new creation. Okay. If you go back to Isaiah, chapter 56 to 66, called the third book of Isaiah, you see that in that part of his prophecy, Isaiah proclaims that the Lord is about to will bring about a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And then what happened. After, at the end of the Exodus. Why is Isaiah important? Because it permeates all of Luke, all of Matthew. Here's what Isaiah is talking about Isaiah, first book of Isaiah, chapter 1 to 39, is doom and gloom. Get ready, you guys, pack your luggage, you're going to be shipped over into exile. Chapter 40 to 55 is the book of consolation from which we have a quotation of Saint John the Baptist, and the words of one of our witnesses. That is in the first, in so chapter 40 of Isaiah, very important quote, and we come back to it hopefully when we reach John the Baptist, and we come out, out of, of the ancient earth. And the last book is what well, in the second book God is saying, I will bring you out of Babylon. That will be the second exodus and once I bring you back, I will effect a new creation. Right? What is the whole purpose of the Luke Gospel? It is Jesus sending His face to Jerusalem and going there for what? Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? To effect His exodus that will take place in Jerusalem. An exodus whose result is going to be what? a new creation. And what we see, eschatologically occurs here in Annunciation, anagogically, meaning as it applies to Christ, and as it applies to Mary. It has already begun. The reality of the Kingdom exists in Mary, and the relationship between Mary and Jesus is the relationship of Jesus and the whole Church. In her salvation, is complete. It now is going to unfold for the rest of us. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month, with whom with with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing would be impossible. And Mary said. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it, be done, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from me. These words of Mary are worth meditating upon over and over and over. Contrast those words with Zechariah's reaction. Remember what I told you last time, don't ask for angelic apparition. Don't ask that God appears to you. You'd be sorry. Here's Zechariah. An angel appears to him. He sees the angel. The angel doesn't speak the riddles. He tells him something very, very simple, very specific. Your prayer has been heard, you will have a boy. Doesn't take, uh, you know, a Ph.D. in theology to understand what the angel just said. I heard, God heard your prayer, you're going to have a boy. What is Zechariah's reaction? He doubts. And what does he want? He wants a sign. How, does, how, how am I going to know this is true? You notice? An angel appeared to him. He called him. He heard him. Now he told me he it. You have a son. What does he say? How did I know this is going to be true? Now, suppose the angel gave us to give you another sign. What is the interaction be? How do I know that this sign is really a weak sign? See the problem? Faith is an act of the will. Based upon love of God. It isn't something that requires proof. It is something we'll put God to the test. Because no matter how many rooms God gives us, even if the holy blessed Trinity were to appear before us, if we choose to doubt, we would. Contrast that with Mary's notion. The angel is telling something way more difficult.